Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Professor Shirley Reynolds is a depression expert who's conducted years of research on depression among young people. She's the director of the Charlie Waller Institute at the University of Reading and also past president of the British Association of Behavioural and Cognitive Psychotherapy. She is the author of Teenage Depression, a CBT Guide for Parents, and another companion volume, Am I Depressed and What Can I Do About It? Okay, so welcome uh, to Professor Shirley Reynolds to the Get a Grip podcast. How are you, Shirley? Pretty good, thanks, Cathy. Yeah, how are you? Well, I'm extremely delighted to speak to you time of the year because I think the nation could do with speaking to a specialist in psychology. Oh dear. (laughs) Yes, there are quite a lot of people uh, giving quite good helpful advice at the moment, including a number of my colleagues. So um, it's anxious times for many, many people at the moment, I think. In particular, Shirley, the parents of teenagers are reeling from the fact that exams have been cancelled Uh, That's the only information they have. Equally, they're also struggling significantly with keeping teenagers, you know, inside when when they should be practicing social distancing. Is there anything that you can say about that in particular, you know, in general for parents? Well, that's a very interesting question. What I would say to you is that this is not a time to worry about the evils of social media or computer gaming or interacting with your friends through the medium of a games console. I was reading something this morning on Twitter where uh, the head of the Royal College of Pediatricians was also saying that this is a very important opportunity to allow teenagers to interact with their friends in a context that they will find normal and normalising. So in the absence of all the other options that parents might normally prefer teenagers to do, this might be a very good time to loosen up on the reins of that kind of interaction. As you suggest, I mean, these are unique times, aren't they? Absolutely unique. I mean, other than that, I mean, I think there are, you're absolutely right. Of course, parents of teenagers at the moment are tearing their hair out, not knowing which way to go. And the uncertainty is quite extraordinary. I mean, the young people themselves are clearly just as confused and dismayed and appalled and outraged and baffled as everybody else and so are their teachers so we all share an equal level of ignorance at the moment I guess what I would say to them is in terms of filling time it is important after the initial shock and horror to think about what might be useful in terms of the the young persons and the families and the parents general purpose so what are they What is important to them? What matters to them? What are the connections, the activities, the 
the conversations and the, the, the things that they want to do and like to do that matter to them. Because what, what we really want to try and find are new ways or old ways of doing the things that matter. And that can be all sorts of things. That can be things that are important to individuals themselves, their health, their well-being, their comfort, their appearance, their dress. It could be things to do with their future, their what they understand, their academic work. I mean, obviously, that's one of the areas that's been particularly disrupted. But if they're still interested in school subjects, there's absolutely no reason to stop studying them just because there are no exams. It might be that they have a passion for the environment or for politics or for religion. And there are all sorts of home-based activities they might get involved with. Again, through the internet would be particularly helpful to connect them with others with the same passions. And then there's all sorts of relationships that are important to individuals, relationships with family members, with friends, with boyfriends and girlfriends. Now, here, social distancing is obviously a major problem particularly if we're talking about relationships with older people, where we have to be particularly careful. But again, I think the computer, social media is our friend here. And I would encourage all young people and their parents to think about scheduling interactions with friends, with family, with family members who are far away or even close, but you can't go and visit, to make sure that the social connections are maintained. So, uh, you know, although they might prefer their children out, outside doing physical activity, we probably have limitations about what's possible here. So we have to think about what are the realistic alternatives and to focus on what is important, what matters, and not what we do just to be look good to other people or to fill the time or because it's just habit. Well, lovely. That's very, very nice, clear advice. Uh, you know, as you say, families need to recognise a their assets and what they have going for them, and find opportunities to grow, develop, and learn within this. Albeit, parents in particular are under so much stress because obviously there's so many financial implications um, for what's happening as well. So uh, we definitely don't want to underestimate that. I'd like to move on, Shirley, to your the reason why we created this podcast, because I want to talk about, um, I've been reading your book on teenage depression, and I really want to focus on teenage depression as a topic for this podcast, if that's okay. Of course. One of the things that struck me about this lovely book is it is genuinely a handbook. It gives parents a proactive pathway for helping their parents and it makes depression less scary and that's why I'm flagging it to my parents um, and I'd like to sort of move through uh, particular areas. I'd like to start with the difference between low mood and depression because when parents read the symptoms of depression they just seem so common, commonly found in young people, even in ourselves on a daily basis. And I think, you know, equally, it's important parents aren't running to the GP every time their teenager slams the door. So can you sort of just dwell on that distinction for a moment? Yes, I can. And I agree with you. It can be very confusing. So there are specific symptoms of depression that we look for if we're making a formal assessment to see if somebody would meet the diagnostic criteria. Uh, to start with, they must have one of the three following things. They must have either low mood 
or irritability or they must not enjoy or get pleasure from the normal things they would have enjoyed or got pleasure from. They're called the three core symptoms. Now, of those, irritability, most parents will agree, is a very common thing, particularly in adolescence, but many of us have irritability throughout our lives. I'm a pretty irritable person myself, and so um, that's not uncommon for me to get a bit cheesed off with people. Low mood, again, we all have periods when we're a bit unhappy, a bit sad, we're upset, we might feel like crying. Again, in itself, it's not uncommon. However, what is harder to meet the criteria for is in addition to one of those or two of those, you must have a number of other symptoms as well. And these are a whole range of different things. Again, they vary in how common they are. The most common one that depressed teenagers will report or you might observe are problems sleeping. So Almost every child or young person with depression will have problems sleeping every day for at least two weeks. So we're not talking about the odd night here. We're talking about protracted, disruptive symptoms. And the most common one is sleep. So 8% of children with depression don't have sleep problems, but 92% have this problem. It's much more common even than low mood or irritability or the symptom of not enjoying things. Other problems that you might see are changes in appetite, excessive fatigue, problems concentrating. That's right, because in the book, Shirley, there's some, it's literally on page 15, other things to look out for, listies, or people can read it in the book, you know, the inability to start anything, tantrums, being overly sensitive, complaining of physical symptoms. So the point is, there's a range of symptoms, but one of the things your book makes clear is what is normal for your child or what's out as different and something that has changed yes exactly exactly so i'm if i as i said to you before i'm let's say i've got a sort of normal level of irritability and everybody around me now can say to each other oh she's a bit that's what she's like and you know that about your own child they've got a normal level of mood or sleep or anything else it's when you notice a change right across a, a number of different areas And when the change lasts for at least two weeks, and that's the minimum, so we're usually looking at longer, and it has to interfere with how they get on with their everyday life. So that would be interfering with them being able to do their schoolwork or if they have a part-time job or interfering with them going out with their friends or doing normal family activities that they would otherwise have done. So it's got to interfere, it's got to last for two weeks, and it's got to be a range of symptoms. Shirley, in terms of adult depression, it, it, there seems to be great overlap in terms of the symptomology. Is that accurate? Everything is exactly the same with the exception of irritability. So irritability is not a symptom that you look out for in adults, but it is a symptom you look at, out for in adolescents. And that's partly because young people will express feeling upset and distressed in different kinds of ways. And what you will often find is that in boys, they'd be much more likely to be irritable and angry and annoyed with people than they would be, say, to cry or look sad or complain of feeling low. So uh, you might see that there is a gender difference there and it incorporates and captures more boys into the picture, which I personally think is very helpful. because I, I worry that we will... 
only think about girls getting depressed and ignore the fact that boys can also and do also uh, get depression. On that particular note, Shirley, it is a little bit of a digression, but in general, it seems like the literature points to boys' resilience, you know, being boys being slightly more resilient than, than girls. But at the same time, the contradiction is in the suicide rates where boys are much more likely to do that. Can you sort of say why that might be the case? Yes, I, I think this is an incredibly interesting area. Um, I think one reason is because depression in boys doesn't get picked up. It doesn't necessarily look what people would think depression looks like. So, for example, the boy is irritable and not crying. So that might be taken to be bad behaviour, oppositional behaviour, you know, be punished rather than sympathetic towards. So boys tend to get missed often when they have depression. And then I think if they have depression, this is just my view. I, I'm not sure how well the evidence supports this, but I think they tend to get depression accompanied with more impulsive behaviour than girls. Girls can also self-harm, but they so cut themselves or hurt themselves in some way, but they more rarely follow through to actual suicide. So the statistics are very clear that young men and boys are more at risk of suicide, of dying by suicide, than girls and young women of the same age. And that is true across the life course. It's not just in the population, it's for everybody. And that's very interesting because my own sort of interest in this area, I was thinking about, A, the impulsivity. We know that boys, that that is actually the thing as parents raising boys that we really need to look at. Because as a criminologist, I know impulsivity is one of the big predictors of delinquency, is what will make them do crazy things that their, their friends want them to do. You know, it's at the heart of so much of boys' behaviour and making sure that they're able to both express their emotions and regulate them as well. Mm. I think that's right. I think we, And I think because we don't recognise some of this behaviour as associated with depression... We react to it, both as parents and teachers and society in general, in a much more punitive way. So a girl is likely to be responded to if she's, you know, acting and being a bit tip stereotypical here, but crying is likely to attract sympathy and concern and care and tenderness and compassion. Irritability is likely to be met with more irritability, annoyance, a bit of anger, hostility, pushing somebody away. And I think, therefore, what unwittingly can happen is that the, the point at which a boy might have responded well to sympathy, compassion, care, etc., was missed. And then they get caught into a system which is about punishment, containment, criminal management and yeah, so you can see how one one small difference early on. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think as, as parents listening to this, one of the things I'm certainly extracting from what you're saying is that we should be more proactive parenting boys in terms of where there is irritability, just watch our own reactions to it, where we suspect sadness and depression to be sensitive to that rather than to be bullish. Often boys will be told to sort of get on with it, to man up type of language may be used with boys a little more typically? 
I mean, I do think there are a lot of important changes around. And I see, for example, a lot of professional football clubs now taking a real interest and being incredibly proactive about mental health in the community. And they're in, they're in such a pole position to, to set an example and to provide role models that every time a, a sportsman or a uh, you know, a pop star or particularly boys and men come forward with something like this. I give a, a bit of a cheer because we need to change the way we think and the way we approach men and boys in general terms and in particular in relation to how they express emotions, how they feel, how they ask for help, how we give help. Thank you. Um, Shirley, I want to I want to talk about hormones. Um, often hormones get blamed for everything, and it's very very difficult for parents to unpick what might be a normal kind of acceleration of symptoms, maybe once a month or whatever it is, and and, and to blame puberty and hormones for everything. Is there mm-hmm. anything you can sort of add to that that would help parents understand more about the link between that and and depression? Well, we do know that hormones will have an effect on certain physical reactions. For example, sleep is very, very sensitive to developmental changes and children's circadian rhythms, the, the times of day they sleep, the points at which they feel tired when they wake up, will shift as they move into becoming an adolescent. And this is a bit of a problem for them because the way it moves is that they, they're going to sleep time, moves later, and their waking up time moves later. So they want to stay up late in the evening and they want to lie in bed in the morning, but school does not accommodate well for this. So you get a mismatch between what a teenage body wants to do naturally and what society requires it to do, which is get up early and go to school and go to bed on time so you can get up at seven o'clock. The teenage body isn't made to do that. So the hormones are there in conflict with society. And eventually, when they come out of adolescence, that will right itself, but it leads to some sleep problems not being uncommon amongst teenagers. So about a quarter of all teenagers will have some kind of sleep problem. What I would say in terms of hormones that fluctuate throughout the month, so here I'm thinking about girls, is that any changes you would expect to see would be unlikely on a monthly cycle to last for more than two weeks. So you would expect to see changes in mood, for example, in tearfulness. But where that's happening, and it is hormonally related, then it would it would be for a shorter period than two weeks. So if a period of tearfulness goes on for longer than two weeks, let's say three or four weeks, then it's not likely that that is just a hormonal reaction. Thank you. That's very clear. Um, I'd like to move the conversation on a little bit to something that I've jotted down, as you were saying, about parental mental health and the relationship between, you know, the fact that it's highly correlated to young people's mental health. And where we begin with this, how can parents look after themselves and think about what's going on in family life as a way of alleviating teenage depression. Yeah, I, I, this is such an important point because parents give themselves a very, very hard time about their responsibilities to for their child's well-being and how their child is feeling and how their child copes with things that happen to them in the world. And of course, we all have a part to play in each other's lives, but we're not in control of everybody else's emotions and lives. When, when, when I'm talking to parents or when anybody in my group is talking to parents, we always say, try and think about yourself and your well-being 
first. Not to be selfish, not to be uh, uncaring, but it's a little bit like, you know, in the aeroplane, when you see the safety messages about what to do in a crisis, you put your own oxygen mask on first, and then you're in a better position to help a child or a more vulnerable person. This is exactly the same, I think, in a family. It's very difficult for a parent who's going through their own personal crisis, having awful things happen to them, coping with, you know, all sorts of negative events, unemployment or no money or broken relationships to also look after themselves and support their child at the same time. So we always encourage parents to seek help for themselves when they need it. And to do that as a priority, it shouldn't be something you just put on the back shelf that you'll come back to later. And when people are listening to this, it doesn't mean, you know, necessarily seeing the GP every week or booking an appointment with a clinical psychologist. You can also cultivate social support for yourself. You know, be mindful of when and how you are becoming depressed. You know, there's a lot of proactive um, actions contained in your book that are very relevant to parents. Yeah, absolutely. And I think many of the same things we'd suggest for young people, we'd also recommend for adults, which is to make sure you have enough in your life of things that matter to you, that you're doing things that are important, that you have a sense of, you know, organising and thinking about how you spend your time. You know, most people have awful demands on their time and very, very little flexibility. What we'd say to you is when you do have a bit of time to spend on yourself, make sure you're doing something that matters to you. It's really important that you have that me time for yourself, as well as all the time you spend on others, your kids, your mother, your father, your best friend, and everybody else. And as we enter a period of time where all of these things may become very amplified, there are challenges, but also there are opportunities to work together on some of this emotional work and work around emotions And one of the things I wanted to highlight, which I've written down, again, as a first step, which you mention in the book, is just noticing, noticing when your child, if you are worried they are depressed, um, being observant and even observant about your own reactions and how just that level of reflection is a very good place to start. It is. And it's very hard to do that when you're sort of caught up in everyday life. But to be honest, what we've all been given now is an opportunity to take a little step back from our normal lives. And whilst we might not have ever wished for the situation we're in now with the virus and so forth and social distancing, we'd never have asked for this to happen. Now we have it. It does give us all an opportunity to change how we're leading our lives. Now, It's not going to be easy by any stretch of the imagination, but we're all going to be spending a lot more time in our own homes. And some of that time we may be able to carve out for ourselves to start practicing a little bit of that self-reflection. If you observe yourself first, that's a much better place to start than just looking out and trying to observe others. And the lovely thing about your book, that one of the key questions, as you probably are very aware, parents ask, is how do I ask? How do I act? How do I get them to open up? I'm not a clinical psychologist. Where do I sort of begin? And in your book, literally, page 18, the, the open-ended questions, this beautiful concept of just asking open-ended questions. Parents do not need to know the solution. And some questions which I'm going to note um, in the notes to accompany the podcast but you've written you know I've noticed that you seem sad a lot of the time is that how you've been feeling 
Do you feel sad, angry more times than you feel good? Have you been feeling frustrated and upset with things lately? So those lovely open questions, they give parents the confidence to start the chat. Yeah, I think I think starting things as a question, being tentative, you know, you're, it's important not to come over as, you know, you know everything and you're in charge and this is not how it is anymore with teenagers. You don't know everything and uh, trying to just be in charge doesn't work very well. Being curious, being open, thinking, you know, questions like I wonder if, could it be these sorts of openings are much less authoritarian, controlling somehow. I think they get kids' backs up a bit less. Absolutely. It's also helpful if they happen in the context of another activity. I think it's really, really hard for a young person if they feel they're being interrogated in a sort of eyeball to eyeball sort of way. So we won't be doing as much of this for a while, but we always used to suggest to people that it's much easier to have a conversation with your son or daughter when you're sitting side by side. So in a car, for example, when you don't feel like that kind of direct eyeball to eyeball uh, confrontational sort of um, setup is part of it. Watching a TV, making comment about what's going on in current affairs, doing a task together, cooking something together, playing a game together. It's easier to have the conversation in the context of doing something else. Also, Shirley, um, I think this may, may be helpful. I'd love your view on it. It's just something that I kind of recommend to parents, which is it's very counterintuitive, some of this stuff, you know, asking these questions when you just want to solve it. You want to stuck in. You want, you want them to tell you everything. You know, it takes courage and, and patience to ask these questions, but equally to watch your facial expression. So I always say to parents, try and pretend they're your colleague. The the emotional connection to, in some ways, a little bit of a backseat and be cool and calm, although it is very, very hard. It's very, very hard and everybody's got history and the young person has history with their parent and you have history with them. So, you know, this can't be easily undone. But I totally agree. It's much easier to say these things than it is to do them. And I would strongly recommend, perhaps, I think I would, yeah, yeah, recommend that you don't dive straight in with a set of interesting open-ended questions. But I would start the conversation somewhere else about something else first. So, so whether that's about your local football team or somebody, a neighbour or a friend or context of the you know virus and not having exams happening now or any of those things that's an easier way in than starting opening the conversation with a sort of question about how are you feeling you look really sad so i think it has to come out of a, na- a more natural setting a more natural conversation a more natural activity so looking for shared enjoyable or just routine activities you might do together and having a conversation when that's happening is less threatening to a young person I think than than sitting them down to have a good heart to heart. Lovely thank you. This is another thing parents of teenagers are very interested in getting the child to the GP getting them to sit down and adhere to an appointment with a clinical psychologist 
getting that kind of cooperation and participation is is difficult, isn't it? In fact, I think there is advice in, in your book about visiting the GP and how you prepare for it. But the actual talking about the appointment is something that parents are very interested in. I agree. I think that's right. I, I sometimes think it's not that young people are in themselves or necessarily unwilling. I think it's about who's in charge and who's got the control about this. So we've recently been offering treatment to young people in schools, and that is remarkably successful. Uh, and I think one of the different in terms of getting people in the door, and I think one of the differences is the young person is able to make the decision for themselves after a bit of a prompting. Uh, so they're not being brought by anybody. So somehow, if a parent can help the young person feel that this is their choice, their idea even, and they are going to be supporting them, but they're not running the show here, I think they're more likely to get them into the place they want them to be, the GP's office. And what you're talking about there, it's very subtle, isn't it? And it takes a lot of parental intuition as well. Uh, But also, also, I just wanted to say um, that they need to have you sort of nudging them towards something rather than demanding it. And you're making me think about the what I've read in the literature about the relationship between over-involved parents and general resilience being, you know, quite lower in parents who are very controlling, who are authoritarian, who will make those demands. It makes children retreat slightly, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. And I think it's really, if, if that's your, your general sort of automatic style, it's really hard to change. So this might not be a change you can make in a day or a week or a month, but I think it comes from a place where you're treating your young person, your teenager as a as a developing person. They're becoming themselves and their role needs to be more independent. It needs to be you need to be more collaborative with them and your role needs to become one that supports them rather than one that directs them. It is a massive mental shift. So this is not always going to be easy but I think often young people reject what their parents want them to do or ask them to do or expect them to do simply because it feels like they're being coerced and getting away from a coercive authoritarian type of model of parenting would be helpful in this regard so you want the young person to understand recognize take responsibility for the situation that they're in but also to be in a position to support them and help them with the decision they make with your help so you're not being excluded from this i think we need to make it clear this is not a situation where parents are not involved they absolutely are but their involvement is to be supportive and collaborative Lovely. And you're giving parents confidence to, to to adopt that particular stance, which I think is very beneficial. I simply just wanted to add, of course, this changes over time. So we're not expecting the same amount of collaboration with an 11-year-old or a 12-year-old as we are with a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old. So the relationship and the nature of the collaboration and support the parent will give needs to change as the young person becomes older, is able to make decisions, feels more autonomous, is able to be autonomous. 
And as I always say to, to parents, you know, the litmus test is when we're not with them. Will they be able to, you know, outthink those gremlin thoughts? Will they be able to cultivate social support? Will they have that independence that we've tried to cultivate, you know, with them in family life? Yeah. Um, Shirley, very, again, practical things parents are interested in if they're worried their child is depressed or if they know they're clinically depressed. Goal setting, which you're very clear about in the book, that's something everyone knows how to do. You know, setting little goals. This isn't something we can help, you know, in, as you say, in one day solving teenage depression, but goal setting, setting smaller, more relevant, measurable little goals will help young people be more motivated towards achieving them. Can you say a, a little, give us a little example of that? Sure. So let's, for instance, imagine that um, the young person wants to do more of something that's important to them. And something that's important to them might be they want to be a bit physically fitter. So they, they like the idea of, of looking after themselves and you know, taking care of themselves but they, they're a long way away from that at the moment. So that would be the, the ultimate goal might be, uh, you know, I'd like to be able to run 5K. I'd like to do a park run on Saturday morning, for example. But at the minute, I'm lying in my bedroom. I haven't left my room for three weeks and I'm barely walking up and down the stairs, let alone walking around the block. So here, I mean, assuming this is what the young person wants, of course, and not what the parent wants, but the, the, the simple idea is that you think, well, okay, what's the simplest, most easiest step in the right direction that takes me from doing nothing but being in my room for the last three weeks to a little bit closer to the goal I'm aiming for? And depending on the young person and how motivated they are, how confident they are, what their previous activity levels were, the first step might be something like literally coming down to the kitchen, making a cup of tea and taking it back upstairs. Yeah, and you want to obviously praise them and make, you know, when they do that, how should parents praise them effectively for, for the enormous, you know, progress they make in those small things? I think that's right. I think we, we, we tend to save our praise for the, the massive uh, things. And, and probably when our kids are well, that's absolutely fine. But when a young person is depressed, they really fail to get much in the way of positive reinforcement. So positive feelings, positive rewards for things that they do. And the more depressed they are, the fewer rewards that they get. So one of the the jobs a parent can really help with is to build back in a sense of reward to the young person. If they if they are able to meet a small goal, then that is a fantastic achievement. So if we get a young person to come into a therapy session, coming through the door is a massive achievement and we will praise that achievement to death. Once they're a little bit better, we won't carry on praising that achievement to death. We'll, we'll move our praise a little bit further away and attach it to things that are a little bit harder. But at the beginning, it's tiny, tiny steps and praise every time a tiny step is achieved. From that point, then you, you, you make the step a little bit higher or you make it two steps and then you praise the second step. So they all need a sense of progression. They need to know they're making progress incrementally. You're going in the way you want to go. It might take six months, it might take six weeks, 
but that's fine. You you you, you set your your time scales out to suit the, the goal that you're going for. You know, so the first major sub goal, if you want to go do a park run, might be walking around the block. That would be a massive achievement to a child who hasn't left their bedroom for three weeks. Lovely. And and, and your book is full of, of, of practical little progress sheets that parents can photocopy, print out. You know, it's very proactive, isn't it, this process? People are very different and, and enjoy different things, but a lot of people like to see how progress is being made. And one clear and obvious way of doing that is by writing it down, keeping a record, keeping a note. And the other thing I would say to you is that if you are concerned about your child over a period and whether things are getting worse or better, keeping a record can be a very helpful way of giving you information that isn't relying on just on your memory. It's very easy to forget good days or bad days. You know, two weeks later, we don't have a perfect memory. So keeping a note of things every day is, is a very helpful thing to do. And actually what you're uh, making me think about is, is the importance of journaling, you know, writing things down, uh, uh, gratitude journals, diaries, thinking about, you know, getting young people to be able to have a space to process their emotion in private rather than just on social media. But having that journaling is very important. It might be a sleep diary. Sleep diary, perfect. Absolutely. I mean, we we often start with sleep, actually, as a first point of um, change because it's very, very common. Because young people will often complain about it because they see what it's doing to their concentration and lots of other areas. And because all sorts of people have sleep problems and it's not only connected with depression. There's no stigma attached to having a sleep problem. And so we can offer help with sleep problems to depressed young people, but also to their friend who has a sleep problem who doesn't have depression. So it's a very good symptom, in a sense, to address because generally speaking, you can make a fairly big difference and you don't have to attach it to a problem of depression, which can be very, very helpful. Lovely. One of the things I'm thinking about is the overlap between the advice that you're giving and what might be the advice in dealing with an anxious child. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is you've mentioned the importance of being curious about one's thinking, but how we think and how we evaluate our own thinking and how we manage intrusive or disruptive thoughts, it really matters, doesn't it? It's at the heart of really, you know, of everything that we do with children who might be struggling, you know, how are they thinking and how can we help disrupt anxious thoughts or catch those awful gremlin thoughts or negative self-talk that just is so intrusive? Totally. Negative thoughts about the self are very, very common in anxiety and depression. Um, and, and there's a lot of overlap and lot of children and young people have anxiety and depression at the same time. So that's a little bit like saying a lot of young people or children have allergies uh, at, like eczema and they have asthma. They're, they're different problems. There is an overlap between them. So many of the same children suffer the same problem. And there are some biological reasons that a core to them both, but they are different and we treat them somewhat differently. One of the common things between anxiety and depression is negative thoughts about the self uh, and just, you know, negative thoughts about the world. Uh, so, for example, 
if I'm an anxious person, I will assume that every dog I will see or meet, if I'm scared of dogs, every dog I see is dangerous. And I will also believe that I am unable to cope, uh, that I will get very, very frightened, that will be overwhelming, and I won't be able to manage my feelings. And so in order to respond to that, what I'm likely to do is to put myself in positions where I will never come into contact with a dog. So I avoid the feeling, the anxiety, the feeling of not being able to cope, the feeling of being out of control, and the dog itself. So it causes a huge behavioural change because I start just avoiding anywhere and anything associated with dogs. So anxiety is usually about uh, fear, um, threat, and not being able to manage uh, extreme fear. And and yet once again, once again, sorry, um, parents will naturally lose to reassure. When actually I remember doing an interview with Professor Cathy Cresswell, and she talks about the reassurance trap that it what it doesn't work. What matters is tackling their thinking. Correct. So it doesn't work because if you reassure a child they really sort of tend to take that as confirmation that they're right. And, and that, will, that will just lead to further avoidance and further belief that I won't be able to manage it and I won't be able to cope. So, yes, what parents need to do is actually encourage their child to be brave, to actually get closer to the thing they're scared of, to learn that they will manage feeling frightened, that feeling frightened won't kill them, and that if they take it step by step, they will be able to manage the fear and eventually the fear will actually go away but of course if you never experience the fear it never ever goes away and of course this is where parents modeling uh, you know how they tackle their own which is of course extremely important at the moment making sure that we model some resilience and model how we manage those fears that we do have in a proactive and positive way as best we can Sure. Parent, I mean, children and teenagers learn from their parents. That's how they learn to cope. They see what other people do and they can learn fears from their parents as well as how to manage fears. In depression, the, the thoughts are not quite so much about fear and not being able to manage fear and avoidance. They're often associated with being, I'm just a bad person. I'm not worthy. I'm unlovable. Uh, I'm useless, I'm a failure. So the negative thoughts are often more tinged to do with the kind of person I am, who I am, my worth, how valuable I am, so that they have a slightly different tone, if you like. But, But both anxious and depressed young people will have negative thoughts, and they may have both kinds if they have anxiety and depression. Shirley, where is the line drawn between sort of, where's the overlap or not between low self-esteem and dep- and clinical depression? Ooh. It's, it's, we don't want parents listening to this thing, oh, my child, you know, has low self-esteem. Maybe they're, they're clinically depressed. There's something different, isn't there, in the tone of clinical depression? Low self-esteem on its own would not qualify as depression. So it's one of the symptoms but it's only one. So they still have to have four or five other symptoms on top. So that might be a sleep problem, which would be the most likely, the not enjoying things or crying all the time or irritability, loss of appetite, poor concentration. So self-esteem alone 
would never be considered to be depression, but it can be a feature within depression. Lovely. That's helpful. Thank you. I want to move on to self-harm. We know that, you know, it's something that is prevalent, uh, more prevalent than it has been before. I've, I've read, correct me if I'm wrong, but certainly self-harming behaviours are on the rise. And just recently, I think some data came out to show that self-harming behaviours in boys were slightly on the increase. Is that accurate? I, I don't know which particular piece of research you're referring to. I think in general, there is evidence that self-harm is more common. But what I would like to say is that it has always been with us. Right. It's more obvious now. People are more observant of it now. But I certainly know when I was at school, there were girls in my class who were self-harming, which is not a new thing, but it is beginning to become more common. I think that is true. One of the things we want to just highlight, again, in the book, you talk about we want, it's scary for parents, very scary if they see their child, you know, engaging in self-harming behavior. But you say we encourage parents to ask questions about suicidal thoughts very gently. Again, that's page 61 of your book. Literally, the image I have in my mind is of someone taking a stone and, and, and just turning it over. And that can be really scary. But it seems to be the only way through is, is, is initiating this chat. Mm. But uh, yes, again, I, I think this is not a question you can ask out of the blue. Yeah, yeah. Um, you cannot just come out with this with no preamble, no context. So this is a question you are going to move to after you've done taken the steps we've already discussed you know you get yourself into a context where talking to your child becomes fairly normal then you start making curious open inquiries about their feelings and you might want to discuss your own feelings in that context as well so there's some reciprocity and then if you are beginning to become cues that the young person has these frightening thoughts about hurting themselves or possibly killing themselves or or ending their life or that life is not worth living, then, as you say, I think that's a nice way of putting it. You know, here's a stone that we're going to just overturn and see what's underneath it. One of the things that's important, I think, for young people who do have these thoughts is to feel that it's a bit like being scared of the dog. This is a scary thought to have. If everybody else is too scared to discuss it with you, This means it really is a scary thought and a dangerous thought. So by opening the conversation and overturning the stone, what you will be showing to the young person is that this is not too hard for me to handle. This is not too scary for us to manage. It's a hard thing to do. We we both can see how difficult it is. But I'm asking you because together we can manage it and cope with it and I can support you with this. So although it's one of the hardest questions or conversations you'll ever have with anybody, especially if it's your own child, by having the conversation, you demonstrate that support is available, that this is manageable, that we can get through this and that I am here to support you. And there are so there is so much help out there. I mean, there are listed at the back of your book I'm always signposting you know there's always a hotline for parents to call always help out there for any young person and I think one of the lovely lovely things about your book is there's a little page 
where you sort of ask young people to have an emergency toolkit, you know, like pack sheet for who will I ring when I'm really sad? Who will I, who's there for me when I'm feeling down and want to talk things through? You know, if I'm really worried about myself, who can I ring? You know, it's important, isn't it, to have those sort of tangible contacts. Absolutely. And that's what having the conversation can take you to, having a practical list of things that you, the young person, and anybody else in their lives can do when these thoughts become unbearable or unmanageable, or they just begin to creep into their minds and they want to share them with somebody. There's no magic wand here, but we we kind of all need to be grown-ups in the room about this and be able to show that we can support our son or daughter through this very, very scary time and that they are not alone with these scary, scary thoughts. It sounds like, again, you've emphasised the importance of this sort of family talk, discussion of closeness. You know, it's easier said than done with teenagers. Oh, absolutely. Hanging on in there is important, isn't it? Hanging on in there is absolutely essential. And, um, you know, you're you're never going to get through to this. This is never going to be a one-time only uh, effort. This is a, you know, lifetime's work, really. And that's what raising young people and children is all about. I mean, I think it's obviously easier to start a habit early and to model the kind of expectations that you have. If we show young people that we take seriously, that we look after ourselves, our own mental health, and that of our partners and our friends, we are showing them that we will also take theirs seriously. So you know, we, we show young people how we will respond to these things in our everyday life. This doesn't always have to be about the conversations we have with them, it's the conversations we have with anybody in our life and the, and the sorts of activities that we get involved with throughout our lives. And it's also about um, family cultures, you know, what's going on in the context of family life, how high quality are those relationships between us, how good is family communication on the whole. There's, there's a holistic view to take, I think, for all of us to audit what's going on. I, what I'd be anxious, and I wouldn't want people to go away thinking, is that, you know, that this has to be perfect. Parents are never perfect. Family relationships are never without conflict, disagreement, disharmony, anger, shouting. These are normal parts of family life, so that's fine. You know, I think when we talk about families being close and the culture, all families have upheaval and disruption within them. It, it's, it's what we do with that and how we resolve those things that perhaps we want to try and focus on. Last two questions, Shirley, because we've kept you for a while. I want to just ask about drugs and teenage depression. I'm talking about prescription drugs that drugs do. Oh, okay, yeah. What's your sort of you know view on whether on, on the sort of efficacy of drugs in terms of teenage depression and and should parents be afraid, unafraid of, of GPs prescribing drugs to young people? How beneficial are they? You know, just anything you can offer on that. Okay, there's a, I have a very, this, this is very straightforward, actually. I know it sounds very complicated, but it really isn't. Well, first of all, GPs normally would not prescribe antidepressant medication to young people under the age of 18. The guidance from NICE, which is the UK NHS body that recommends treatments, specifies that only a child and adolescent psychiatrist should prescribe antidepressants to under 18 year olds wow that is amazingly interesting i did not know that 
and that if they do, this must be closely monitored, which would normally mean a monthly follow-up to check on progress. So that would be to make sure the dose was correct, to look in about side effects and so on. So that's the that, that's important that people know that. The recommendation is that the first line of treatment is a psychological treatment and that after four to six weeks, if that has not begun to shift things, a adding uh, antidepressant medication should be considered and discussed with the young person and their family. So that is because for more severe depression, there is relatively strong evidence that the combination of drug and psychotherapy is the better option for most young people. But because various reasons, trying psychotherapy first is what's recommended for four to six weeks, followed by adding drugs to that if no change is being made. So a combination of approaches can be optimal. It's a very delicate process. And as you say, the adolescent or child psychiatrist is the expert on that. Absolutely. Now, sometimes GPs do prescribe antidepressants to young people. And I can understand entirely why they do. It can be because they feel the young person will wait too long to get therapy, or there is a kind of sense of urgency that, you know, they need to do something now that they believe that the child and adolescent mental health services won't offer something quickly enough. So I I think when GPs do do this, it's perfectly understandable. But really, the guidance suggests that psychological therapies come first, followed by the addition of antidepressant medication. And the lovely thing, as indicated by your book, is that parents can have a positive um, role to play in supporting those psychological therapies. Yes, absolutely. That's right. So young people and their parents would normally both be involved, both in the assessment, so what's going on, what's the problem, how are we going to treat it, and then in the delivery of a psychological treatment. It's always important that the young person, again, slightly depending on their age, feel that they have the autonomy to have treatment for themselves but their parents will always be invited to be, should always be invited to be part of that as a supportive part of their network. So yeah, very, very important part of making psychological therapies effective and and making sure that any progress that young people do make is then popped going after therapy ends because therapy isn't gonna go on forever. It's a finite resource, it'll last for so many weeks and the changes the young person makes then need to be supported by the rest of their network. And the most important part of that network is often going to be their family. And what you're referring to is sustaining positive change. Really, really important, isn't it? And I think people often just forget that there's a whole system around that young person that needs to be working effectively and being encouraging and noticing progress and making those kinds of remarks that will, you know, um, keep feeling good. Shirley, I want to end the interview on a very positive note. Um, You talked about when the young person's making changes and progress, but that change has to be sustained, doesn't it? Um, Can you talk a little bit about how parents and families, what what roles they have in that process? Yes, absolutely. It's all about making sure that we keep well. And when we have setbacks, which we all will have, 
that we are able to recognize that they are a setback and to then really use the the tools and the and the methods we have of kind of getting back on track and i think what parents and families have there is a very very important role in instilling kind of hope for the future a sense of purpose and direction and an overall kind of attitude for their young person that you know this is an optimistic future that you can look forward to that's not what you do when the child is in the depths of depression but once they've recovered it is important to reinforce that that forward progression and that sort of future direction for them Thank you so much. And lastly, I just wanted to flag up, I love signposting parents to great resources. So number one is your book, The Guide for Parents, Teenage Depression, Help Your Child Beat Their Low Mood that you wrote with Monica Parkinson. And the other book that teenagers can actually read themselves is called Am I Depressed and What Can I Do About It? Is that accurate? That's right, exactly. And they're written to be companion pieces to each other. So there is some that, yeah, they reflect the same material, but one from a young person's perspective and one from a parent's perspective. Wonderful. We'll be telling all the parents who listen to this podcast about those resources in the accompanying notes. So lovely to speak to you, Shirley, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Kathy. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.